0: Man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now your host, Mike Florio. I was really upset when that press conference was conducted by Stephen Howe, the prosecutor. Johnson County, Kansas, said that he believed a crime had been committed, but there would be no prosecution because they couldn't prove conclusively who committed the crime. And then came that audio Thursday night troubling audio, and we still wait for something. Now, look, I'm going to start with Tyreek Hill because we were very aggressive about our position that the Chiefs needed to cut him and the NFL needed to suspend him. And my position has been suspend him for good. Banish him. As it relates to the Chiefs, they've done, as a practical matter, all they need to do for now. He's gone from the team. He's gone for the foreseeable future. I believe that the NFL will put him on the Commissioner Exemplus this week, pending resolution of the reopened investigation. An investigation that was reopened because of this audio that appeared last Thursday night on KCTV. And there's a chance that the prosecution will take care of the problem for the Chiefs and for the NFL. And if that's not the case, then the NFL needs to do its own investigation, impose its own discipline, and that's the point where the NFL, in my opinion, should banish Tyreek Hill, that he's forfeited the privilege permanently of being an NFL player, and when you throw on top of everything that's gone on, the fact that it's a child, the fact that Tyreek Hill had the incident in December of 2014, those are aggravating factors that will bump up the minimum six-game suspension, and look, there could be all sorts of various offenses of the personal conduct policy embedded in that tape, and what that tape signifies, what that tape is evidence of. And I know that Tyreek Hill technically denies breaking the boy's arm in that tape, but you've got the woman who had been covering for him essentially admitting it on his behalf. Now, is that proof beyond a reasonable doubt? Good question. Is that enough for the NFL to take action? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we wait for something as it relates to Tyreek Hill this week. The NFL in the past has refrained from putting players on the commissioner exempt list in the offseason because their position is there's nothing to exempt list them from. And I think the NFL's view is, why use the commissioner exempt list to draw attention to something that people aren't really paying attention to the way they would during football season? Well, they are now. So it's time to make an exemption when it comes to the exemption. An exemption exception. And deal with Tyreek Hill that way. All right. What else is going on in the National Football League on this fine Monday? post draft still plenty of things happening things will slow down in time but for now off season workouts OTAs mini camps etc rookie mini camps coming up this weekend you get that one opportunity to bring the guys in right after the draft teams will invite a bunch of guys on a tryout basis you end up with a ton of guys there more than enough to have football practice. But there will be guys who weren't drafted, who aren't signed to undrafted free agent contracts, who are trying to earn a 90-man roster spot, and then they try to earn a roster spot from 90 all the way down to 53. I saw that Mike Garofolo of NFL Media says that Seahawks receiver Doug Baldwin is leaning toward retiring after undergoing three off-season surgeries, waiting to make a decision. Here's the problem. If he just retires now, he owes $2.8 million. That's a fact that previously wasn't brought up as it relates to the widespread reports that Baldwin may walk away. Now, if the Seahawks say you can retire, we're not going to try to recover the $2.8 million in unearned signing bonus money, then it's no big deal. But if the Seahawks aren't willing to write that off, then Baldwin has to wait to be released. If he just can't go. Fails a physical, whatever the case may be. Ready to go, but can't go. And there have been guys who have wanted to retire, who have just retired when they could have just showed up and half-assed it and gotten cut. And I wonder if there are guys who have showed up and half-assed it and gotten cut rather than retiring... Because they they don't even want to go down that path of having to pay money back. But that continues to be a reality. There's been 20 years since Barry Sanders abruptly retired from the Lions right before training camp. And he was the first guy who had to pay back money. And people are like, what? Yeah, it's not free money. Signing bonus is not a lottery ticket. Signing bonus is payment in advance for services to be rendered. And if you don't render the services, you owe the money back. It's that simple. Speaking of money, Steelers taking care of Ryan Shazier. $473,000 salary paid to him this year, even though he'll miss the full season. On the reserve, physically unable to perform list, that means he's done and can't come back this year. Not that anyone thought he would come back this year. He's still holding out hope of playing, At some point in the future, I don't think a doctor ever clears him to play, but that desire to play becomes the fuel that gets him to the point where he's doing box jumps and he's walking and he's running and it's amazing recovery. I'll be stunned if he ever plays again, beyond stunned, because I don't think there's any doctor that ever says, okay, Ryan Shazier can play. I watched Josh Rosen's press conference a couple of hours ago. Has a player ever become sympathetic as quickly as Rosen has? You know, last year there was that attitude that Rosen is kind of entitled, rich kid. God forbid he speak his mind. The robots need to just utter the, the various collection of phrases like Woody. In Toy Story, pull the string. There's a snake in my boots. Rosen actually showed that athletes have brains and sometimes they use them. He got knocked for that by the football establishment. God forbid these individuals have independent thought and the desire to express it. It's hard to tell how good of a player he was last year because he was playing for a crap team. This year, it's going to be hard to tell how good of a player he is because he's going to be playing for a crap team. And next year, even with Rosen, the Dolphins could be bad enough that they're in position to take one of the top quarterbacks in the draft and it's lather, rinse, repeat for Josh Rosen. But he's handled himself well. His press conference today, I thought was impressive. He was baited into... Making a comment, like he said last year, when he wasn't picked, nine teams made a huge mistake, and then he revised it to the teams that took quarterbacks, and somebody asked a clever question, now as a practical matter, because he went for a second-round pick to the Dolphins via trade, every team has essentially passed on him with a first-round draft pick. And he said, I'd like to give you the quote you want, but for the most part, I'm going day by day. And he understood. And he smiled. He was respectful. We'll see how he does. And this notion of the Dolphins tanking, I know that it irks Brian Flores, the head coach, and Chris Greer, the GM. I know this, though. I heard and saw enough in Arizona at the league meetings to believe that Steven Ross is on board with the idea that sometimes you just got to take your lumps. Sometimes you just got to, you just got to lose to win. Now, he Didn't put it that way, but the resignation to taking your lumps in order to get better. We'll see. The plan may have changed. And it was a great move by the Dolphins. They gave up pick number 62 plus a fifth rounder next year to get the guy who was the top 10 pick in 2018. And there's going to be a lot of people rooting for Josh Rosen, given the way he handled himself on his way out the door. From Arizona to Miami. We talked today on PFTOT about the dynamic of players who have early eligibility for the draft entering the draft and not being drafted. 144 with early eligibility, 49 didn't go drafted, and those guys are all now SOL. Can't go back to school. There's a a weird presumption that any player who would go back to school, would somehow be better off the next year, there's a chance they've just reached their maximum football achievement and they're not going to be any better. Sometimes that extra year makes a guy drop. Drew Locke is a guy. Sims believes firmly that if he had come out in the draft last year, he'd have gone higher than this year. Because the 2018 season, his team was crappy enough that people hold it against him. It's a shame that these guys can't go back and play more college football, but what happens is, and it's very simple, the guys who leave early and don't get drafted, they become the guys who next year the NFL and the NCAA will point to as a way to scare players away from this all-in proposition where if you give up your eligibility, there's no turning back. Once you sign with an agent, it's over. You should be allowed to go undrafted and go back and play college football. I mean, you're not getting paid anyway. This whole idea that they're amateur athletes, it's just baloney. It's a fiction that they're trying to support to justify not paying them. I don't see it changing. And look, there will be people who say, all oh, these guys got bad advice. Well, everybody gets bad advice. You get bad investment advice. You get bad advice on real estate. You get bad advice on whether or not you should buy that car. People get bad advice. People make bad decisions. How do you ensure that everyone gets good advice? Nobody knows what's going to happen in the draft. Yes, bad advice is part of life. People get bad advice. And you can either create a mechanism for rectifying it or you or you can't. There's always going to be someone, whether it's an agent, a parent, a friend, a draft expert who has an overly ambitious assessment of a guy and he hears it and he says, hey, I'm going to go get paid. All these guys go to, not all, okay, not all of them, 99% of the guys who go to play big time college football are going so they can play in the NFL. And a lot of them only go to college because they have to, they got three years to kill. You can either not play football for three years and no one will want you, or you can go show that you can play football. It's that simple. All right, let's see what else is going on. Rant over for now. Crusade on pause for now. The, let's see what else we got. Looking for something good to talk about. Oh, what was I going to talk about? There was something I wanted to discuss. If, I figure if I scroll enough, I'll find it. The NFL draft viewership, record high. I still don't understand... I still don't understand. Hang on one second. I have to text the uh, the PFT crew about something that... Uh... Hang on. i got to get this right. Let me just go ahead and take this. Ba, 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 done. We have a perpetual text chain where we basically call fly balls. That's how we say what stories we're going to get. It used to be email. Only earlier this year did we decide to go ahead and, and turn it into text messages. So like anytime I'm off the grid for an hour, I got 20 text messages. So I don't, I don't know that this is the right approach, but, uh, but anyway, I had to, I had to let the folks know about, uh, something that we had yesterday. So we want to make sure we don't cover tracks again. We don't want to cross streams. We don't want to write about things we've already written about. And every once in a while I'll see something that's like, are you sure that, that that's new? Because we may have had it yesterday. It's hard to keep up with everything. It really is. That's the benefit of having six different people who are on this, seeing these things and, and uh, you know, can help each other out. So we don't bring you the same story on multiple occasions. How about Dave Gettleman? I just want to say a little about Dave Gettleman before we move on to answering your questions today, because there really isn't a whole lot happening, but I just felt like I had to do one of these today because, you know, when in Rome... Dave Gellman's just got to let it go. He got himself so cranked up and twisted up on this Daniel Jones thing. Look, here's the truth on Daniel Jones. Because I don't buy this notion that he knows for a fact that two other teams would have taken Daniel Jones if the Giants passed on him at number six and tried to wait until number 17. I know for a fact, he says. The only way you know for a fact is if you're spying on somebody because nobody knows what any of these teams are going to do in the draft. Nobody knows. The only thing you know about the draft are the picks that were made. Nobody knows what's going to happen. But here's the problem. In an effort to get their fan base and their media comfortable with the idea of the Giants taking Daniel Jones, there was enough praise heaped, enough leaks, enough reports, enough speculation linking Jones to the Giants that they couldn't have waited until 17 to take him. They had to take him at six. They put themselves in a position. By putting so much out there about Jones to the Giants, the Giants had to take him at six. They're lucky they didn't get jumped at number five or number four. And on that point, the Raiders, they wanted to trade down and still take Cleveland Farrell, the Clemson defensive end, because they didn't run their mouths in advance about wanting Cleveland Farrell and nobody knew they wanted them. So they could have gotten them later. If the Broncos, if Washington, if those were the two teams that were so hell bent on Daniel Jones, all they had to do was call the Raiders. Peter King reported today after his communications with John Gruden and Mike Mayock that no one called. No one called when the Raiders were on the clock. They were they were hoping and praying that someone would call so they could trade down, pick up an extra pick, and also still get Cleveland Farrell. No one called. And everyone knew the Giants were on Daniel Jones. Everyone knew. Gettleman acts like they're locked in. Well, Washington, he didn't say Washington and Denver. Here's what he said. He said, I know of two teams for a fact. And then Ralph Vacchiano, who covers the Giants for SNY, reported Denver and Washington, which means Gettleman or someone else told Vacchiano that those are the teams that Gettleman knew for a fact would have taken Daniel Jones. Here's the truth because the Giants let the cat out of the bag in order to not have people lose their minds if they had taken him out of the blue at 17. They take him at six. It's not out of the blue. People still lose their minds, but if they'd waited, they ran the risk, not of Washington or Denver taking him between six and 17. They run the risk of someone trading up to number 16 and taking him right before the Giants could. Now, I don't know what the reaction would have been from the fans and the media if that had happened. I'm sure a certain amount of them would have said, thank God for that. And then the Giants could say, if it had happened, well, we really didn't want and we put it out there so it would push a guy that we really want one more spot down toward us. I mean, it's all one big game of chess, checkers, and chicken all rolled into one. And you don't know what anyone was going to do. I think the only thing we know for sure is the Giants decided they wanted Daniel Jones because I don't think there was... Now, Now here's the thing. If, if Kyler Murray, wound, if they wanted Kyler Murray, they, they brought him in for a visit. Was Daniel Jones their number one quarterback or the number one that they knew they could get? I don't know. But the bottom line is, if Jones works out, it won't matter whether he was 6, 17, 1, or 31. If he works out, they got him. If he doesn't, they got to find another quarterback. And they'll probably have another GM when they find another quarterback. And Gettleman is kind of staking his career in New York to this guy working out. And then the question is, when will he play? I was stunned by the report from South Palantonio regarding the new sportsbook in Vegas that begins taking bets on June 1 that the over-under for Daniel Jones starts is 7.5. 7.5. I threw something out there today on PFT Live. The possibility that if there's a quarterback with another team that suffers a severe injury, Maybe Eli Manning waves his no-trade clause and just says I'm out. I'd rather go to a place where I know I'm going to play all year, and I don't know that I'm going to play all year. But the New York Giants. They did it with Kurt Warner in 2004. He was five and four, and the Giants benched him for Eli Manning. When will they bench Eli Manning for Daniel Jones? Just a weird time for the Giants. Strange time. And if they start winning games, it'll all be forgotten. If Jones ends up being a great quarterback, it'll all be forgotten. They'll laugh about it. But the Giants are just in a weird posture where they don't want to have to answer to fans and media, but they know they do have to answer to fans and media. They get themselves all twisted in knots trying to explain away what they do. I don't sense a whole lot of confidence in what they do. They wouldn't feel compelled to you know, cite resumes and and just kind of have that, there's just that, that, I don't know what it is about the Giants. There's, there's just, I, you know, I've, I've talked about this before and I'm sure that plenty of people with the Giants don't like me because I'm this candid, but there's just an attitude. And Jets fans, anytime I say that, they, they start, they start nodding. There's just an attitude that the Giants have and it permeates everything they do. And, and, I, and we're seeing it as it relates to Daniel Jones. And and I think it's driving the Giants crazy, because on one hand, they feel like they shouldn't have to justify to media who don't know what they're talking about, and fans who definitely don't know what they're talking about, a decision regarding the future quarterback of the franchise. But they feel like they have to say something, and it's just got them all twisted and turned, and it's just, it's fascinating, but it's also troubling, if you're a Giants fan. It can be a little frustrating, especially if you're in a hurry or running late to find yourself at a railway crossing waiting for a train. And if the signals are going and the train's not even there yet, you can feel a little bit tempted to try and sneak across the tracks. Well, don't do it ever. Trains are going a lot faster than you expect them to be and they cannot stop. Oh, they can stop. They'll eventually stop about a mile after the engineer hits the brakes or more. And by the time the train stops... That thing that was your car won't be your car anymore, and that thing that was you won't be you anymore. Point is, you don't know how quickly that train's going to arrive. The train can't stop, even if it sees you. The result is disaster. If the signals are on, the train's on its way, and you just need to remember one thing. Stop, because the trains can't. That's a message from our friends at NHTSA. All right, time to answer your questions. I have a feeling there are a bunch of them because we haven't had one of these in a couple of days. Let's see what we have here. And I always look forward to this because it gives me ideas for talking points. It gives me ideas for things to write about. It gives me ideas for things to wedge into the outline for PFT Live or PFTOT. So I appreciate all of the input. Let's go. PFTP PM Posse. We always talk about the franchise tag is bad for vets, but aren't compensatory picks worse because so many teams won't sign free agents for more than the minimum until after May 7. Compensatory picks plus the wage scale is killing the NFL's middle class and screwing vets. How does the PFTPM posse fix this? Well, I agree with you. This whole notion of compensatory draft picks and teams want to lose more than they sign. So they get extra draft picks and they have young, inexpensive players that they can squat on for four years. Yeah, there's, there's something to that. And that causes teams that are smart and understand how the compensatory pick process works to not go out and sign veteran free agents. That's part of the problem. Absolutely. Now, the franchise tag isn't as bad for veterans as it's made out to be, because a lot of times the value of the franchise tag in a given year outpaces the market. And also we've seen examples of how the franchise tag can be weaponized by the player back against the team. That franchise tag was part of the leverage for Russell Wilson to get his $35 million a year deal. It's already been two weeks since that happened. So I don't know how you get the NFLPA and the players behind the idea of getting rid of compensatory draft picks. It's been around ever since the current formula, the current concept of the CBA came into being in 1993. Will not be easy to get the NFL to give it up. But you know what? If you can convince the teams, hey, this is just another way that the Patriots rigged the system in their favor, maybe that would be the way to get 24 teams to agree, let's just get rid of compensatory draft picks altogether. And there would be more free agency activity if you didn't have this compensatory draft pick thing. Be good for everybody. Be good for the league. Be good for the players. Be good for the media. You would see teams jump in that otherwise would wait. Question from SJP490 with CBA Talks started. Could the NFLPA negotiate with the XFL and anyone left over from the AAF to form a joint venture to stage exhibition games during the NFL season with NFL stars as a counter to owners locking them out? Infrastructure is already in place to hold and air games. Yeah, look, I've been talking about this for a while now. The, the only way that the NFLPA and the players have true leverage And can fight fire with fire against the owners is to be ready to play their own games. And if you wait until a work stoppage begins to begin to throw together plans to do that, you've already lost because the NFL already has everything in place. They just have to get 53 different guys to wear the uniforms. That's all they have to do. They got the training facilities, they got the schedules, they got the TV deals. We saw it in 1987. I watched those games. And it reinforces the concept as explained separately by Jerry Seinfeld and Billy Crystal that when it comes to sports, we're just rooting for the laundry anyway. The only question is, who's in it? And yes, the XFL could. And I asked Oliver Luck about this a couple of weeks ago. Remember, we interviewed him in the aftermath of the demise of the AAF. And and I asked because... People ask me, hey, could the XFL align with the NFLPA and move a season, do a bonus season in the fall of 2021, I think it would be, 2021, yes, and stage games with NFL players. And luck said that's way too premature, and I can't imagine the XFL ever doing that. And good luck putting those games on broadcast TV, because the networks out there Either televise NFL games or they'd like to. Who are you going to find that's going to stick their finger in the eye of the NFL by televising games featuring NFL stars who are currently locked out or striking from NFL teams? And that's where the money is. The money's in the TV deal. I mean, maybe Google or Netflix or Facebook or somebody would set it up and do it. And here's the other thing, too. What if it ends? What if it ends? You'd almost need to have the players commit to a full year. But that would be the kind of thing that would get the NFL's attention. But I don't know that the players would ever have the will to do it. I've said, especially as it relates to the criticism that gets directed at us for pointing out that guys don't show up for voluntary off-season workouts, that People think we shouldn't mention that because they're voluntary, like it's not news that the guy's not there because he doesn't have to be there, so if he's not there, it shouldn't be mentioned. It's just a stupid argument. I've said time and again, if the NFL players really wanted to make hay and get the attention of and scare the owners, they should all walk out of the offseason program, all of them. Problem is, they can't get them to do it. There's too many guys who would cross the informal picket line because their attitude would be, hey, if you idiots want to leave at a time when we're competing for roster spots, go ahead, I'll stick around. And uh, they'll remember that when the time comes to decide who makes the team and who doesn't. PFTP and Posse with the rookie wage scale having nearly the opposite impact than what it was intended, presumed to have, and instead has seemed to slow the rise in player compensation. While speeding up the death of the NFL's middle class how can it be fixed, adjusted with the next CBA? Boy, some high concept stuff from TFTP and Posse today. How do you fix it? You 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 say let's go back to the way it was prior to 2011, where it costs a hell of a lot more to sign these rookies. But you know it's hard as a theoretical matter to get older players to understand how it helps them to have young players making so much money. What they need to have is a system where If you are drafted and you're good, you unlock a greater degree of compensation. You get paid the way you would have gotten paid under the old CBA, pre-2011. If you're a bust, you're stuck with the base amount under the rookie wage scale. If you're good, you get what you would have gotten. That was the concern I had. I remember interviewing the commissioner in 2010 for the one and only PFT season preview magazine. And I asked him point blank, and this was before the rookie wage scale. This is something you've been advocating. That's fine, good, whatever. How do you ensure that the players who aren't busts, who deserve to get paid, deserve the money that they should get under the rookie compensation system, how do you ensure that they get what they deserve? And the commissioner's position was, well, the teams will take care of them. Well, sometimes they won't. Sometimes you have Jadavian Clowney, who plays out his entire five-year contract and is now Operating under the franchise tag. There's no guarantee that a team is going to do anything about it because there's there's nothing to force them to do it. That's why I've been a big proponent of holdouts by guys entering the fourth year of their rookie contracts. Because after year three, you're eligible for a new deal. I've been a proponent of great players on a team that is heading to the postseason. Let's play this one out. Patrick Mahomes. He's eligible for his second contract the moment the 2019 regular season ends. What if he says to the Chiefs that Monday, I'm not playing in the playoffs unless you sign me to my second contract and here's what I want, period. Now, look, they could punish him under the CBA. We went down this road before as it relates to Le'Veon Bell. He could be suspended for conduct detrimental to the team. It would be a big mess. But the bottom line is he could just say, I'm not playing. He could refuse to play. He would have a potential sanction imposed upon him under the CBA, but the bottom line is the Chiefs wouldn't have him for the playoffs. Now, he also would make a lot of enemies very quickly in Kansas City, but boy, I long for the day that one of these guys just plays hardball the way that owners do all the time. And I can understand why they're afraid to do it. There's certain lines you can't cross because you do rely upon the fans liking you. And if you are all about getting paid, The fans who are making far less than you're making, even though you deserve every penny you're getting, they're not going to support you the way that they could, the way that they should. Ksteez13, Mike, I think you should reassess your position about banning Tyreek Hill from the NFL. What he did was abhorrent, but banning him for life would likely make the domestic situation around Espinal and his son worse. Punishment should be harsh, but cutting ties with the situation doesn't protect Tyreek Hill. Or his family. I I, look, I think that whether or not, and this argument came up when the facts first came out, when the investigation first kicked in, and the discussion was had regarding Tyree Kill and the possibility that his son's arm was broken. And I said at the time, if Tyree Hill was involved in breaking his son's arm, he should never play in the NFL again. And someone came at me on Twitter and said, basically, he, ha- he, he needs to be able to make a living for his family and for his son. And this is kind of a twist on that same argument. If you punish him too hard, he's not going to have money, and it's just going to make things worse. And people need to have a right to earn a living. Well, you do have a right to earn a living. Every American citizen does. You don't have a right to earn a living in the National Football League. And remember this. This is the point that gets lost. And I've been trying to bang on it as much as I possibly can. 1,696 jobs available in the National Football League on regular season rosters. 53 per team, 32 teams. That's 1696. That is a finite number for every guy. Who is given a second chance and gets one of those jobs. There's a guy who loses his first chance who never did anything wrong. Because if you're going to put Tyreek Hill back on a roster, let's say he's suspended for a year and he comes back and the Chiefs reinstate him and he's good to go. Somebody who otherwise would have made that team for 2020 doesn't make that team. Oh, but he'll get picked up somewhere else. Okay. He'll get picked up somewhere else and he'll take a roster spot from somebody else who otherwise would have made that team. And that guy will end up out of a job. Oh, well, he'll land somewhere else. Well, yeah. And eventually you will get to the point where there is one more guy who is unemployed and chances are that guy's never done anything wrong in his life. That's the thing we have to remember about the privilege that is playing in the National Football League. And it is a privilege. Now I understand that talent rules the day, but this idea that we need to keep Tyreek Hill employed in the NFL. Otherwise, things will get worse for him and the mother of his children and his children. There's a point where the NFL is not responsible for that. Now, I firmly believe, I don't know this, but I believe that the NFL and specifically the Chiefs have gone slower on Tyreek Hill than they did with Kareem Hunt because I don't think it's unreasonable to be concerned that a combustible situation between Hill and Espinall becomes much more combustible if Tyree Hill would have been cut by the Chiefs in the immediate aftermath of that audio coming out, because I'm sure Hill was just beside himself, that Crystal Espinall would record that. Sneaky. Double cross. Of course he's upset. And then if that quickly becomes Hill not being asked to stay away from the team, but being cut, that inflames the situation. But I do not believe, do not believe, that Hill should get another chance. He got his second chance. See, here's the problem. And this is why I reacted the way I did on Thursday night. Tyree Hill pleaded guilty to choking and beating Crystal Espinol in December of 2014 while she was pregnant with this three-year-old son who's at the center of the current controversy. It happened in December of 2014. Hill eventually pleaded guilty to it. Gets into the NFL. Fifth round draft pick. Even though he wasn't suspended by the NFL, he would have been drafted a lot higher than the fifth round. So he has suffered a consequence in a roundabout way. He would have been at least a second round or maybe higher if he stays at Oklahoma State and none of this ever happens. But when he comes to the NFL and immediately makes a splash as a rookie great return man a lot of potential as a receiver and then 2017 great potential as a receiver and an all-around offensive weapon running the ball catching the ball drawing attention when he takes off down the field opening up the offense and then you throw Patrick Mahomes into the mix in 2018 between his arm and Hill's feet you got to cover every inch of 100 by 53 yards, puts a lot of pressure on a defense. And Hill keeps getting better and better. Chris and I, at one point during the regular season, argued that Tyreek Hill's the best receiver in the NFL because it's not just what he does, it's what he does to a defense. But to get to the point where we celebrate Tyreek Hill, we had to suspend disbelief and convince ourselves that The guy who did what he did in December of 2014 isn't the guy who's wearing number 10 for the Chiefs and capturing our imagination with all the things he can do on the football field. Because we want to celebrate greatness on a football field, and we don't want to think about the opposite of greatness away from the football field. And the moment you start listening to that audio, that's when the bubble bursts. That's when you feel like you've been lied to that the guy who says, and you should be terrified of me too, bitch, is the same guy that choked and beat Crystal Espinall in December of 2014. The moment I heard that line uttered, they're having a a debate, an argument, a conversation, whatever, a dialogue about whether or not this three-year-old boy respects Tyreek Hill or is afraid of him. And Crystal Espinall says at one point, "It's, it's terror. He's terrified. And he'll go straight to, oh, and you should be terrified of me too. That chilled me to the core. And that was the moment that I said, that's it. That's it. Done. 1,696 jobs in the NFL and Tyree Kill is no longer entitled to one of them. It's over. That's why I believe what I believe. And that's why this idea that he needs to earn a living in the NFL He needs to avoid this kind of outcome because it'll just cause more problems between him and Crystal Espinal. Look, the NFL is not responsible for domestic problems that happen between people who don't make it to the NFL and their significant others or who were in the NFL and no longer are. I mean, if he wasn't... Here's the thing. If Tyreek Hill wasn't supremely talented, first of all, he never would have been drafted. And second of all, he'd already be cut. Now, I can understand why the Chiefs are waiting if they're waiting at all because of the combustible nature of the situation. And it's interesting to me whether or not if Hill was kind of a fringe guy. You know, let's say he was a Cordell Patterson entering his contract year after not having his option picked up. The Vikings drafted him in 2013 and never really became the guy he was supposed to be. If he was on the fringe of the roster like that and they're not really sure about him and something like this happens, do you cut him right away? or Do you hold on to him because of this humanitarian concern that it's going to make an ugly situation worse? I don't know. But I guarantee you that it would be far more likely that the team cuts a guy who's on that fringe. And I want to be clear. I'm not saying that Cordell Patterson Patterson ever did anything wrong. He didn't. I'm using him as a skill. I'm trying to find a comparable guy who was a receiver, who was highly thought of, but ended up in that that range of, we don't know what we're going to do with him. You know, the guys who are in that zone, they do something like this and they're done. They're gone. The only reason Tyree Kill's still on the team is because he's great with the exception of, quite possibly, the Chiefs, who endured the Joe Von Belcher tragedy in 2012. They don't want to have another repeat of that, and I think there's reason to be concerned. It's not overly cautious. It's smart when you know how this relationship has been, and when you get a glimpse into what's really going on behind the scenes when it comes to this relationship. Andrew Yeh, first Trubisky over Mahomes and Watson, and now Jones over Haskins. Is this unconscious slash conscious bias at play? It's a small sample size, but we rarely, if ever, hear about the black quarterback at a bad college program getting picked so highly like Trubisky and Jones. And it was Trubisky at North Carolina, Jones at Duke. I saw a statistic last week about the number of games started for the Giants by an African-American quarterback over the history of the organization. And I haven't verified this, but it wasn't many. It wasn't many. And, I, I, man, I don't even like to go down this path because I'd like to think that we went through that in the 90s and that's over. That's not even a consideration. We have seen time and again that quarterbacking ability is not in any way tied to race. And you know what? Hey, I look at it this way. Whatever your reasoning, if you're going to take the guy that's not a great quarterback and hope that he's better than the guys who you can look at and see they are great quarterbacks, regardless of any demographic characteristics, you're running the risk the guy's not going to be good. Now, Trubisky's hardly been a bust, Would you take Deshaun Watson or Patrick Mahomes over Mitch Trubisky now? Yes. Whether or not you take Dwayne Haskins over Daniel Jones, that remains to be seen. And like Dave Gettleman said, we'll see if I'm crazy in three years. Oh, yes, we will. Although that's not stopping people from passing judgment on Dave Gettleman before the three years expires. At The Real Forno, what is the plan for your forced vacation? Will they give the show to Sims and Peter King for four weeks now that they are full-time with NBC? The show goes on hiatus every summer. PFT Live goes away for four weeks, primarily for the Tour de France. Tour de France, ho, ho, ho. The Tour de France takes over for three weeks. Things slow down late June into mid to late July, so we'll be gone for four weeks. And I think, let me look at my little calendar here. Not that I have any notes on it. I never use the thing for notes, but sometimes I just need to see it. If I see it, then I know what we're looking at. I think our last show is the 28th of June, Friday. First show back would be the 29th of July, so we'll be off for 31 days. Now... going to the beach at one point in that process, but otherwise we'll be home and just, you know, I need that time to just kind of live a normal life for four weeks without getting up at 5 a.m. and doing the show. It's a nice four weeks and it's actually more stressful to do the show when things are slow because it's a hell of a lot harder to produce three hours of content when there ain't nothing going on. Now that said, That's how we got down this PFT PM rabbit hole a couple of years ago when I took my forced vacation. I looked at this little box that's sitting right behind my computer between my computer and my TV monitor in my office. Got the microphone sitting here, the headphones. I got the original headphones when I started doing radio four years ago. And the little pads, like they came off, I don't know, three years ago. And I've never bought new ones. I just take the pad and I put it on my ear and then I put the headset over it and it holds it in place with gravity. But anyway, I I looked at that a couple of years ago and it's like, yeah, let's just record something and put it up there. I wanted the people who subscribe to the PFT Live feed to have something that that they can listen to during that time that we're off. And I started doing a half hour, 45 minutes, an hour, who knows? So, I'll probably still do that a few times a week. I enjoy it. Sergio D. suggests beach party in South Carolina. Yeah, you're not invited, Sergio. And I know you're in New New Zealand, so it doesn't matter. I I know that there's still a desire to do a meetup thing. I've still taken that under advisement. Haven't made a final decision yet. Still don't know where we would do it. And I ain't going to Dallas. I ain't going to Vegas. I ain't going to California. I ain't going anywhere. But I ain't doing it here. So, I don't know how we're going to work this out. Oh God, it's still, and, and here it is. Leapers 500 brings it up. I'm down for the Pittsburgh meetup if my summer work schedule allows. Is this a thing, summer? I totally get you not wanting folks in your home. Yeah, no. And you know, somebody at one point turned that around on me and said, hey, I don't want to come to your house. Like m- m- maybe this whole thing, you know, m- m- maybe maybe this is what I've been doing for the last 18 years. H- h- here's what I've been doing. I started the website in 2001 and worked on the website every day while also practicing law, gradually building and building, making no money, but just doing it because I liked it. Hearing that there were people that were actually reading it, people in the NFL, getting input from fans. And I could see the traffic was going up and up as we put more into it and eventually starting to make some money. So I spent a little more time into it and began to do more and more and tried to do different things with audio. We were experimenting with podcasts back in 2003, 2004. And 2006 Sprint comes on board and we finally start making real money, so I stopped taking on as many cases in my law practice and I work more and we keep grinding and grinding and it grows and it grows and slowly but surely it's becoming a media juggernaut. And then 2009 here comes NBC and That's when life changes and I stop practicing law and I'm on football night in America and I've got the show on NBCSN and I do the podcast every day here and it just continues to expand and grow. And now after all these years, I've finally, finally got myself in a position where I can do a meetup with a bunch of strangers who come to my house and I kill them and eat them all. That is one hell of a diabolical plan. That is a commitment to the long-term craft necessary. God. Anyway, I don't know what we're going to do or if we're going to do anything. I've toyed with the idea of trying to do something that maybe was sponsored because, hey folks, let me tell you something. If I'm going to do this, I'd kind of like to make some money off of it. I do enough free stuff, i.e. this podcast every day. I haven't made a lot of money let me rectify that. I haven't made any money off of this podcast. I mean, I I, I have a running tally of how much we've made from ads, and it's not enough to justify me taking the time to send the invoice to NBC Sports Radio to get my cut. So I'd like to find a way to do something that entails some sort of a fee without charging for admission, because if that was the case, no one would be there. And and even then, like who's really gonna show, who's really gonna show up? Think about it. Think about it. Wherever we pick to do this, ask yourself: Are you gonna be able to get off work to do it? Are you gonna be able to get permission from your spouse or significant other to show up? Are you gonna spend the money necessary to get there? Are you really gonna do that? That that's why I mean, somebody suggested Dallas, like this confluence of this guy's in town and this guy lives there, and it, yeah, it's it's not practical, especially if I want to get paid. Sergio D., if a player gets a multi-year suspension, does their contract remain part of the salary cap? Are there circumstances where a contract is removed from the cap? What if, God forbid, Russell Wilson was hit by a bus tomorrow? Look, if Russell Wilson is hit by a bus tomorrow, the Seahawks are in the same predicament Washington's currently in where they're paying injury guarantee to a guy who can't play. And that's one of the reasons why I think Washington went with a rookie quarterback. You can get him cheaper, a lot cheaper while you're paying off the balance of Alex Smith's injury guarantee. And I think he's off the books after 2020, but that's two years of Alex Smith getting paid and not being able to play. I don't think there'd be any cap consequence for the Chiefs if Tyreek Hill can't play. That's the least of their concerns. The real question is, at what point do they turn around and affirmatively impose punishment on teams that give players second chances and those second chances blow up? And you take away draft picks. When will that ever happen? Will it ever happen? I think it should. I just think that it's one thing to say they should do it. It's another thing to come up with a formula that will work. Because I'm not sure there's a formula that will work. Because then it becomes even more political. If you know that cajoling the league office into suspending an Ezekiel Elliott or suspending... Who else was suspended recently? Isn't it amazing how we forget this? How it all just kind of blurs together? But if you can get the league to suspend a guy and that means his team ends up losing a third round draft pick or whatever the case may be, it it the, the, the sport is too competitive to not incentivize owners whispering to the commissioner about what they want. And then a process that should be about fairness and right and wrong ends up being based upon who's got the most power behind the scenes and who can make the best case, just like the the second New England Patriots controversy, Gate, The belief that that was fueled by a lingering belief seven years after the fact that the Patriots didn't get enough of a punishment for Spygate. So they get hammered for Deflategate because pa- people in powerful positions lobbied and lobbied and lobbied. So that that's my concern about that, but they need to do something. At the C.J. Newman, does this Josh Rosen move motivate... Ryan Fitzpatrick to lose the spare tire he acquired in the offseason from eating cake. Yeah, I mean, hey, competition's on now. Fitz has got to get himself in shape. Fitz has got to try to win the job. But don't we see this every year where there's a guy who signs with a team as a starting quarterback who ends up being supplanted by a younger player? Usually it's through the draft. Now it's through trade, Josh Rosen. But Teddy Bridgewater said no to the Dolphins. Who else said no? Why am I blanking on the name of the Tyrod Taylor or Tyrod Taylor? I couldn't remember either Tyrod or Tyrod. Tyrod Taylor said no and signed to be a backup in LA to the Chargers. Either guy would not be happy right now. And I don't know how happy Fitzpatrick is, but he may end up on the bench. Dean Osborne, 42, do you think that Gettleman really knows what he's doing, or is he just making it up on the fly? Let me give you another explanation. I think Gettleman is doing what John Mara wants him to do, and he's taking the flack for it. Just like the commissioner gets paid all that money in part to take the flack for the unpopular decisions of all owners, I think Dave Gettleman is getting paid and is in that job to take the public flack for the decisions made by John Mara. I really do believe that. and It's kind of a strange situation because there's co-ownership of the Giants. The Mara family started the team, but at some point somebody needed some cash, so Tish got half of it. I don't think Steve Tish does a whole lot by way of coming up with decisions on how the football business should operate, but I think Mara is the guy who's behind the curtain telling Gettleman what to do, and Gettleman's just trying to make it all look good. That's my theory. There may be nothing to it, but who knows? D. Stewart 267 responds to that question by saying he's making it up on the fly. Each day they do something contradictory to the day before. Didn't sign O's- Odell to trade him, then traded him. We did. We need pass rush. Ignored pass rush. Elar's our guy, and we won't reach. They reach for Jones. Don't give up on talent. Removed all talent. He's a gas bag. That's Donald Stewart, not me. Tyler Furness, did you see that Mike Mayock took a player from Prairie View A&M that stumped the guys in the NFL Network's truck? I I know that, and this was kind of weird. I don't know if it was the guy from Prairie View A&M. Was that Quincy Williams' brother? Quinnen Williams? There was... Uh, or Quinan Williams' brother Quincy. I'm sorry, I got, it. I got the cues mixed up. Quinnen Williams' brother Quincy got drafted, and they didn't have the graphics, they didn't have the video. And then when we pointed out what a surprise Quincy Williams being drafted was, Ian Rapport of NFL Media said, well, they, he visited this team and this team and this team, and the Falcons thought about trading up to get him. Well... Daniel Jeremiah didn't get that memo because he didn't have him among whatever... Wherever he cuts off, he didn't have him on there. And see, this is one of the challenges. I've been meaning to write this, but it it takes a little too much time to craft it the right way, and I don't want anyone to think I'm being an asshole more than I already am. When you are a media draft expert, think about it. It's the Cramerica Industries theory because... For the most part, NFL teams have small armies of scouts, and they have the resources to send these guys anywhere they want. And it is an extremely involved and complicated process. It's not just watching game film. They send scouts to practices all season long. A couple of years ago, my son and I were at a West Virginia University practice in late July, and there was a Jet Scout there. Watch them practice. They send them to practice. They send them to in-season practice. They send them to games, and then they study the game film. They scour, scour for anything and everything. What will the coaches say? What's the strength coach say? What do their friends say? What does the person at the counter at the convenience store across the street from the guy's apartment, say. What kind of guy is he when he comes in? Is he rude? Is he nice? The teams have the incentive and they have the ability to cast a very broad net. The media draft expert, for the most part, now I know that ESPN's got scouts, Inc., whatever that is, behind Kuiper and McShay, but I don't know that they're... I, I doubt that out on the scouting trail... You got scouts from the Jets and the Saints and the Falcons rubbing elbows with guys from Scouts, Inc. I just think they have a greater network of people who watch film and or gather information from teams. For the most part, the media draft expert, and this is why I call it the America Industries example, the media draft expert is nothing more than a solitary man with a messy apartment which may or may not contain a chicken. It's one guy working alone. He doesn't even have Darren, the intern. It's one guy watching film. So how in the world does one guy watching film ever do what an entire organization with multiple scouts watching film and their bosses watching film and their bosses watching film and meetings where they go over and watch the film together and rank and rate the players and discuss the findings from the area scouts that they've learned in scouring over everything they can to find out what they can. And then they make their draft boards out of that. The teams are going to have better draft boards and the teams are going to uncover guys that the solo draft expert working in a messy apartment that may or may not contain a chicken. That person's going to miss some folks. And that's where you have to be diligent. It's not just grind and grind and grind on film. It's talk to people that you know in the league. And it's always hard to get people to be honest with you about who the prospects are. But who should I be watching? Hey, Phil, I'm trying to figure out my safeties here. The top 10 safeties. Who are the safeties I should really be there Here's where I got this guy, this guy, this guy. There missing one? How about that guy? You know what? They're, this guy. And and even then, it better be people you trust. Because they can mess with you. And hey, the Raiders kept their desire to draft Cleveland Farrell quiet in large part because Mike Mayock wasn't available to the media. Mike Mayock was available to exclusively the Raiders. So it won't surprise me when the truck gets stumped. It won't surprise me when the individual draft expert gets stumped because the draft expert is at a major disadvantage. Now, look, they do the best they can with what they have, but the reality is they don't have much. Pip Greville says, just want to let you know, you're still on Sky Sports in the UK, not every night, but usually three or four days. Sky Sports USA was a pop-up channel just for the few weeks before the Super Bowl. Now you shuffle between a couple of their other channels, but it's great to have you on TV It's great to be on there. And we've adjusted. I no longer say, when I say hello to our friends in the UK watching the program on Sky Sports USA, I'm just going to leave it at Sky Sports. Because I, I understand now. And I saw somebody sent me a picture of like the guide that shows us on different channels there. So, hey, that's good. We appreciate the relationship with Sky Sports. And we're glad to serve the folks in the UK. Another one from Piperville. Don't you think Pat McAfee was brilliant at the draft? Maybe we should start a people's campaign to get him the MNF job. That would be awesome. Yeah, that's kind of, I don't know if you're being sarcastic. That one's kind of out there. He's trying his damnedest to get that gig. And I thought he was spectacular. He's got that, that wrestling announcer vibe. That Michael Buffer thing. When I'm on his podcast, here's what happens. He sends me the number by text. I call the number. And when the phone picks up, there's not a, hello, we'll send you right in. There's not a, oh, hello, yes, hi, yes, uh, just a few minutes here. They're going to be taking a break. They'll do your segment next. As soon as the phone answers, he launches straight into this long, extended introduction, which is just awesome. He really is good. He's got great command of his voice. He knows what he wants to say when he wants to say it. He knows when to talk fast. He knows when to talk slow. He knows when to talk loud. He knows when to talk softly. I, I, just, I thought it was great. And I thought it was funny. I thought everything about it was funny. And he stirred him up just enough. He didn't go completely over the top like Drew Pearson. He he did, and I because I was on with him last week, and I said, you got to stir up the Nashville fans with a whole cold angle. He was good. He was really good. It's good to see him doing well. You know, you rarely see a kicker or a punter make a dent in the media. I know Jay Feely's done some good work, but McAfee's taken it to a different level. Tyler Tice, 92. My younger brother has been scouting and evaluating college players for years now and has a dream of being an NFL scout. Do you have any advice for him? Yeah, make sure you know somebody. That's your only way in. You got to know somebody. Or you just, you got to find a way to show up. You know, the, 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 God, we've already been going for an hour. The, um, the proving ground is the fact that they pay you next to nothing early on. You got to be willing to go somewhere and make no money and bust your ass. And you got to be in a position to do it. That's why, you know, for a lot of these guys, and Chris Sims has explained this before, for a lot of these guys who like have families, they can't do it. Because you can't have a second job because you're spending all your time Proving yourself to an NFL organization, and where's the money going to come from? So you either need to have a spouse who's making money and who's perfectly content with you making little or nothing as you prove yourself over a period of years, and that may or may not ever lead to anything, or you need to have an independent source of income and revenue. It's not easy to do, and it also helps to know somebody, or to be the child of a cow, of a coach or a GM or you know, in a position where you press a button and you get your introduction to the business. Another one from Pip Greville. It may have all been hunky-dory for Cliff Kingsbury and Kyler Murray sharing the same agent at the draft. What about three or four years' time when Murray's trying to negotiate a huge second contract with the Cardinals? That's a good problem to have. That means that Murray's ended up being a, a damn good player, and by then, it's not something that the agent is negotiating with Kingsbury, the agent's going to be negotiating with someone else. Leapers 500. Do you feel the NFL is tolerant, or was and had to be dragged into the late 20th century on domestic abuse because it had more of an old school culture and mistakes these awful crimes as part and parcel of discipline or keeping your wife in line? I don't, I don't I don't know about that. I just think a lot of this stuff is hidden. When you listen to the Tyree kill audio, this isn't the guy who's walking around the facility. At Kansas City. I know that much. That they were stunned by what came through. Yeah, that's how these guys are, right? Out in public, they don't act like that. They act like that at home because it's about power and it's about showing that you have power and acting on it, unfortunately. It's a societal problem and it's not football. It's not basketball. It's not, It's it's just societal. And if you have enough guys like the NFL with 1,696 players, there's going to be guys who engage in domestic violence. And hopefully in this day and age, we're all more cognizant of the warning signs. And we're all more willing to take action when we think something like that is going on. Another one from Leapers 500. I know constitutional law wasn't your forte, but is the... Oh, God. Is the president likely to prevail on a pretextual claim that he can simply ignore all the subpoenas of a Congress that he deems irrelevant to their work? I find these areas tricky, but that seems absurd. Look, I've I, i I've been paying less and less attention to it because I think if you end up being obsessed with it all the time and watching for every turn and twist, and, and first of all, you're playing into the hands of the cable news channels because that's what they want you to do. They want and they revel in this never-ending source of drama, 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 what's happening next. And, and look, there'll be a flashpoint from time to time that I think requires us to pay attention. It's part of our civic duty. But the daily drip, drip, drip of this subpoena, that subpoena, this fight, that fight, this press gaggle with the president, that press gaggle with the president, this rally from the president, that rally from the president. I don't know how you function as a productive and happy member of society if you are constantly dialed in to the never ending news cycle, which it's constantly news, but it never goes anywhere. And I don't know, has it always been this way and we just don't pay attention? Is it that we've all been anticipating some sort of a climax? This is all building towards something and that something is never going to happen, but for the 2020 election, is that where this is all heading? And I just feel like the, like the election process never ends. At what point is it going to be one presidential election ends and the next campaign begins the very next day? I think they take like a three-month break and then the planets start lining up. And look, whatever you believe, you believe. It's a fascinating exercise in human dynamics. But I look at, all the Democratic candidates, and it seems like every week there's another one, and we're still fairly early in the process. In 2015, a year and several months before the 2016 election, which is kind of where we are now, 2019, a year and several months before the 2020 election, it was June. I remember we were on vacation when Donald Trump came down the escalator at Trump Tower and announced that he was running. And I remember thinking, then, this guy's got a chance to win. There's a charisma that he has that resonates with just enough people and they played the board just right. They knew exactly where they had to win, they knew exactly what states were in play, they knew exactly what needed to be done to get the electoral votes, and they strung enough together and they won. Can any of the Democratic candidates beat him? There's an argument to be made that any can that the next election will be all about a referendum on the current president, but you know, maybe that happened in November of 2018. Maybe that was the soul cleansing vote. Can one candidate going head to head with the incumbent president get enough people to show up and vote? I don't know. And I I, I hate to be apathetic. When I was practicing law, I had to be political on a local and state level Because the political system has such influence on who the judges are that handle cases. And who the judges are goes a long way toward whether or not your clients are going to get justice. Because who a judge is, what his or her background is, what his or her political beliefs are, what his or her ambitions are for higher appointment by presidents of a certain political background, goes a long way toward determining how hard or easy it's going to be to get justice for your clients. So I had to be very political when I was practicing law, and I hated it. So once I stopped practicing law, I became extremely apolitical to the point of apathetic. And it was nice for several years. And then 2016, everybody got involved. Everybody had an opinion. It was so polarizing. And we've been in the aftermath of that ever since. And finally, here I am, mid-2019... Or I'd like to think I just don't care anymore. 70 kilos. Mike, what are your tips for functioning on little to no sleep? I, look, I I remember hearing in the 80s that Donald Trump slept four or five hours a night and thinking, how in the hell does that guy function? And then I remember hearing that George W. Bush functioned on four or five hours a night. And I remember being like kind of envious, like, man, if that's all I needed, that would be great. I'd get so much done I don't know if it's a function of age, if you just don't need as much sleep, but I just get by with it. And I, I'm not. Here, here's 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 my sleep schedule. Normal night, in bed by midnight, although that very easily becomes twelve ten, twelve fifteen, twelve twenty. I try to get lights out, phone off by twelve twenty because it's five twenty when that alarm goes off. So, 12 to 12.20 12, down, 5.20 up. Now, at some point in between, something I've started doing in the last nine months, so my alarm, which has to be very loud to get me awake at the appropriate time, so it doesn't wake up my wife who sleeps a lot more lightly than I do, I inevitably wake up at some point between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. When that happens, I get up, I walk down the hall, and I crawl into bed in one of the guest rooms that we have, and second sleep, right? I get to sleep, and then I take a nap. Now, the problem is like on a Monday morning, Peter King's columns up, so I read the damn thing, and then I lay there this morning awake. It's like, just get up and go to work. You know that, don't you get that feeling? Where you're laying in bed, it's like, I got 45 more minutes, yeah, but I'm not, aware, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just laying here. What do I do? And then you finally fall asleep for like 10 minutes and the freaking alarm goes off and you wish you had just gotten out of bed. But anyway, I get, I try to get five at night and then I try to get another one during the day. And I don't know that that's healthy. I don't know that that's effective. Would it be better if I just got straight six hours? Probably. But if I get six, if I can average six Sunday through Thursday and then on Friday or Saturday night sleep as long as I want to and during football season I try Friday night to get 7 and Saturday night when we're sequestered in the hotel that we stay at in Connecticut I try to force myself to get 8 that's that's but it's it's all on what you can do and how you can function they say there's a sleep debt and it sooner or later comes back and gets you I just like to have one day a week where my alarm doesn't wake me up and I can sleep until My body just says, okay, go ahead and get up. I should probably wrap this up. We've been going for a while here. What was Sims feeling? This is Leapers 500. About the top five quarterbacks, did they compare to each other well, or was there a clear-cut superior talent? How did they compare to past draft classes? One point that he made today that I thought was kind of intriguing. The idea that Will Greer went higher than Jared Stidham, Greer is less of a threat to a pending starter he's a better backup because Cam Newton's not going to look at him as a guy who could threaten him. Where some of these other guys, Ryan Finley, Jared Stidham, et cetera, could be viewed as more of a threat. I hadn't thought of it that way. And Sims says basically that he's been told that Dave Ragone went higher than him in 2003 because Ragone was a better backup. And Sims was a guy who would have been more of a threat to a starter or a threat to be a starter. So who knows? All right. I should probably wrap this up. Let me look for one more good one And uh, then we will wrap it up. And I appreciate you you taking the time to ask the question. I got to most of them. I got to most of them. Let's see what we got. Gears of Ted, do you think the combine will start traveling to other cities like the draft? I sure as hell hope it doesn't. I really hope it doesn't. It's perfect for Indianapolis. They're talking about doing the medical in Indianapolis and the underwear Olympics elsewhere. But you know what? With each draft that ends up being a major production with all those people there... It's just a matter of time before they do something like that with the Combine. Especially because in Indianapolis, there's a smattering of fans. That's all I ever see. I know there's an NFL experience somewhere at the Combine, but you just don't see many people. When we leave the area where we do our show and where, like, the bench press is, you you see some folks hanging around, but not like it would be if they would... um, that if they would uh have it in a city where people lose their minds the way they lose their minds for the draft all right let's see let's let's, let's let's go with one more here one more at the real forno did the Vikings do enough for Kirk cousins in your opinion well they've walled off some of the excuses with Garrett Bradbury and the other guy drew Samia a couple of interior offensive linemen offensive linemen who can move, zone blocking, not man blocking, the Gary Kubiak system of zone blocking, a lot of pulling guards, the one cut running. Have they made it easier for Dalvin Cook? They drafted a running back also in round three, I think, one of the last picks of Friday night. All you got to do is address the areas of need, and they've done that. So now... Whether or not the Vikings are any good this year is going to depend largely on whether or not Kirk Cousins is any good this year, and we're going to find out what he can do. Five primetime games. Can he win in primetime? Do they have a good enough team around him? Yes. The question is, can he play well enough to justify his $28 million per year contract? All right, that's it for today. We'll try to do one of these again tomorrow. Thanks for your time, as always. Check us out Tuesday, PFT Live, 6 a.m. Eastern on NBC Sports Radio. Slides over to NBCSN at seven. I don't know why I'm saying all this stuff. You know all this by now. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just wasting your time. Let's just end this thing. We'll see you tomorrow. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art 19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk.